Well, good morning to all of you once again. It's a blessing to be able to come down and worship the Lord with all of you and open the Word with you. Um, I'm going to be working through the first verses of the letter of 1 John now, and so if you have a copy of the Bible, hard copy or electronic, you might want to scroll or open to the little letter of 1 John. Uh, that's toward the back of the New Testament for those of you who might not be familiar with the New Testament landscape. And if you go all the way back to the end, the last book is Revelation, and then one book back toward the front is Jude, and then you've got 3 John and 2 John and 1 John, so you'll be able to find it. And what I'd like to do is just read the first four verses for you and have you follow along, and then we're going to pray together, and then we'll get into God's word. We'll unpack these verses. So let's all read. I'm reading for the New American Standard Bible. For those of you who might have a different translation, but you'll find that whether you have the NASB or the ESV or the New King James, it's similar. So hear the word of the Lord. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. The word of the Lord. Let's turn our hearts to him once again. Heavenly Father, we all come together with thankful hearts that we have the privilege of coming and gathering and worshiping you and that we do that freely in our context. We thank you that week to week we can come as one expression of the body of Christ and Lift up praises to you, lift up praises to your son in the Holy Spirit. We can fellowship with each other, we can minister to one another through the gifts that the Spirit has given each of us that know you. We can hear from your word. You've blessed us with copies of your word. And every time we gather together, we do so freely, meaning we don't have to fear that somebody's going to knock the door down and take us off to jail because we're Christians. And we want to thank you for that. We know that many of our brothers and sisters in the world do not have the same privilege. We pray for them, the persecuted church, that you would uphold them and that you would help them just be faithful to you regardless of the pressure that governing authorities or ungodly societies might bring against them as Christians so that they, continuing in faithfulness, will spread your word in their context. While we, as we worship you in our freedom, might spread your word in our context so that wherever the church might be found, Christ might be exalted. We want to pray once again for Israel, for the conflict in the Middle East. 
We pray especially for the Messianic Jews in Israel who follow Messiah. We ask that you would be working through them and in them so that they can serve their community and minister to those that are suffering. We pray that you would help us know how we might reach out and help as well. And we pray most of all that you might bring an end to the conflict and an end to the killing and an end to the death and that your peace might prevail. And so please grant that. And please help us continue to pray for those that are suffering in that area of the world. And now, Father, we turn our attention to this section of Scripture. And we pray that you would use this section of Scripture to speak to each of us. I know that there are things in this section of Scripture for each of us that are Christians. And if there are any that are here that are not believers in Christ those who have never been regenerated by your spirit. There's something in this even for them. And so we invite you now to feed us, empower us, encourage us. And I pray that you would give me grace to teach in a way that honors Christ and is an aid to your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as some of us know, while Jesus was still here on the earth walking around after his resurrection, but before he returned back to heaven to take his place at the right hand of the Father on high, he told his disciples that they should wait in Jerusalem until they received power from on high so that they could be witnesses to him. And he had also told them that when that took place, they were to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching these disciples to observe everything that Jesus had, had instructed them, and he gave them the promise that he would be with them even to the end of the age. And that's exactly what happened. And so when we read in the book of Acts in chapter 1, we see Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 2, we have the record of the Holy Spirit coming. And as you read through the book of Acts, you've got the record of these disciples going out with power. And they began to make disciples. And they just spread the gospel all over the then known world. They went out everywhere and they preached the good news about Jesus. And as they preached... Churches were founded and formed, and different clusters of churches back in the first century could trace their foundation to the various apostles who came and who preached. And so it is accurate to talk about, for example, some churches were Pauline. That is, Paul was used to plant those churches. An example of that would be the church in Corinth. Also, Peter ministered and the greatest example of a Petrine church, Petrine church, is the church in Jerusalem. Because Peter preached the very first message on the day of Pentecost and the church in Jerusalem was founded. And so he was the apostle that was used of God to launch that church. And then there were also Johannine churches, churches that came about and were nurtured as a result of the influence of the apostle John. 
And some of the churches that John had influence over were churches found in the region called Asia Minor. And the apostles, as we know, also wrote letters to these churches when the apostles weren't present with them in order to further instruct them or to correct them or whatever the case may be. And that's what we've got in the New Testament. And so we've got Pauline letters, we've got Petrine letters, we've got Johannine letters, right? And John also wrote a gospel. Um, And so John had written a gospel and that presented Jesus from a particular perspective. Uh, He also wrote, as we've talked about before, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And so we've got a gospel and three letters which were written first to Johannine churches, though they were and are applicable to all churches even today, right? And so the gospel of John presented Jesus from a unique perspective. So we've got how many gospels? Four, the gentleman over here says, right? Three of them are known as synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called synoptic gospels because they give a synopsis of Jesus' life, and all three are similar, although they're not identical. Just like if you had three people that witnessed a traffic accident or three people that witnessed a really positive event, and you ask each of those three people to give an eyewitness account of those events, they would tell the same story, but they would have different details. You follow me? And that's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke are. They're synoptic gospels. They give a synopsis. They tell basically the same story, even though each one differs in some of the details. Okay. But then you've got the gospel of John. And when John wrote his gospel, he presented Jesus from an entirely different perspective. He calls Jesus in his gospel the Word. And then in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, he talked about Jesus' preexistence. And then he talked about his creative work. And then he talked about how he became flesh. And so in verse 18, it specifically says, and the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, filled with grace and truth. So the first 18 verses present Jesus as the preexistent one and as creator and as he who became flesh. And then in chapter 1, verse 19, through the end of chapter 12, um, John actually presents two sets of sevens. Two sets of sevens. And so if you read through John's gospel, you'll see that John presented seven signs which Jesus performed, which pointed to the fact that he was the Christ of God. The first sign was that he turned water into wine at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. There were six other signs. And as you go through the gospel of John, these signs grow in intensity until the most intense and powerful sign Jesus did was that he raised a man that had been dead three days back to life. That man was Lazarus. And so John reports seven signs, each that increased in intensity until he tells the story of the raising of Lazarus. Now, the raising of Lazarus was so powerful that the Jewish rulers began to say, man, 
if we don't stop this guy, the whole nation's going to follow him. Well, that was kind of the point. And so he presents seven signs. Uh, John also presents seven I am statements. And each of those I am statements were designed also to point to who Jesus is and what Jesus provides for the people that he came to save. And some of you know what some of the I am statements are. And so there's one place where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. There's another place where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And in another place, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who believes in me will never die. And so those are the I am statements. There are seven of those. The most powerful of which is where he claims to be the same person that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. And so if you read chapter 8, he's in this dialogue with these Pharisees. And he talks about how Abraham rejoiced to see his day. And he saw it and he was glad. And their response to him was, wait a minute, you're not yet 50 years old and you're saying that you've seen Abraham? And Jesus' response was, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And when God appeared to Moses out of the burning bush, that's how he identified himself. Moses says, hey, you're going to send me to Egypt. Who should I say? You are, who should I say, sent me? And he says, you tell them I am sent you because I am who I am. And so when Jesus said that, before Abraham was, I am, he claimed equality with the being that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush because that's who he is. So anyway, seven I am statements. And then if you're in John chapter 13 and you read through the 17th chapter, You've got what's called the upper room discourse uh, where Jesus gave instruction to his disciples to prepare them for what was to come. He was going to go out and get crucified and it was going to really affect them. And so he wanted to know that not only was he going to get crucified, but he was also going to go away after he got crucified and rose again from the dead. And he was going to send them the Holy Spirit and he wanted them to understand that it was crucial for him to go away because he was God in flesh, and as the God-man, he was circumspect with the body. He was limited by a body in a sense, just like we are. But he said that it was crucial for him to go away because if he didn't go away, the helper would not come, but if he went away, he would send the helper to them, speaking of the Holy Spirit. And whereas Jesus um, in the flesh was at one place at one time, the Holy Spirit had the ability as God's spirit to be in every disciple all the time, everywhere, all over the world. And so the Holy Spirit was going to be sent. And so John 13 to 17 covers those kinds of instructions. Uh, He was preparing them for his death, resurrection, and departure and the coming of the spirit. And then the 17th chapter is the great high priestly prayer. So that's the gospel of John. And then when you get into chapter 18 toward the end, then it has the account of the trial and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the instruction at the end of Jesus' life. Now, as John and other apostles preached the gospel of Christ, churches were formed. And the interesting thing is 
because they did preach the gospel of Christ and churches were formed. Churches have continually been formed until Grace Bible Church was formed quite a number of years ago. We're just like an extension of the apostles' work. And so churches were formed. Over time, though, trouble arose. That always seems to happen. Trouble arose within the churches. And that was the case in the Johannine churches. And so 1 John was written as a result. 1 John was written as a result. Now, we might ask ourselves before we go further into the introduction, um, what were the problems that had arisen in the Johannine churches that John was writing to remedy? Well, let me just give you three. Uh, If you read in chapter 2, verse 22, and if you read again in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, and we won't read there because eventually we'll get there, those verses show that there was an early form of Gnosticism that had arisen in the churches and had begun to affect the churches that were related to John. Now, what is Gnosticism? Gnosticism comes from the word gnosis, which is the Greek word for knowledge, And the Gnostics had a really interesting worldview. We won't go into the detail of that right now. But suffice it to say that a person was a Gnostic if they believed that they had come to have a special knowledge that other people didn't have. Gnosis, a special kind of Gnosis. And so in the case of the first Christians, the Gnostics would say... Yes, we've heard the gospel of Christ, but now we've come to have this deeper knowledge, this broader knowledge, this better knowledge, this more mysterious knowledge. So we're the in crowd. We've got the special knowledge, and you don't. That was part of what Gnosticism was. And the Gnostics either denied Jesus was Christ or that he had come in the flesh. Actually, both. They denied that he was the Christ, and they denied that he came in the flesh. Now, we're talking about the physical Jesus, or the spiritual Jesus, right? And we'd have to get into Gnosticism for you to grasp the fullness of what I'm talking about. Maybe one of these days we'll unpack that a little bit more. Um, Here's a second problem. Some had divided out of the church and were attempting to take others with them. And so if you read in chapter 2, verse 19... Uh, John references them. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. And he talks a little bit about them. Uh, if you jump down to chapter 20 or verse 23, he continues to say one of the problems. Uh, whoever denies the son does not have the father. Uh, verse 22, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. That was one of the characteristics of these Gnostic Christians. And so John's writing to correct That, and I said Gnostic Christians using Christians in parentheses or in italics, I should say. Some had divided out of the church and were attempting to take others with them as a result. And then here's the third problem. These people who supposedly had a special inside gnosis that others didn't have had confused many of the Christians in the Johannine churches. They had confused many by causing doubts to arise about John. Is he really a messenger of Christ? And they had confused them and caused doubts to arise regarding whether 
those believers had true knowledge of God. And so when you get over to chapter 5, verse 10 through 13, that's what John's addressing there. And so there was a problem in the Johannine churches. And this problem was urgent. It was serious. And it had to be addressed. How urgent was it? Well, I'll give you an example of how urgent it was. And we need to tune into this. Uh, Division among Christians in any church gathering does great damage. I think we know that. Division does great damage. It shakes people's faith also. It can shake a person's faith to the core. It can shake the faith of a whole congregation to the core when divisions take place. Uh, Regarding this, one of the writers I like to read, a man named Thomas Brooks, who was a pastor who lived in the 1600s, observed this, and I quote, he wrote in one place in one of his books, ah, how does the name of Christ and the way of Christ suffer by discord of the saints? How are many that are entering upon the ways of God hindered and saddened and the mouths of the wicked opened and hearts hardened against God and his ways by the discord of his people? And then he closed with this little statement. Remember this. The disagreement, the division, the discord of Christians is the devil's triumph. It is the devil's triumph. And where discord is coupled with false teaching, as it was in the Johannine churches, where discord is coupled with false teaching, the damage is even greater. And so in the face of that reality, what was John to do? Well, he addressed the problem by writing what we have as 1 John in order to assure the believers that he and his companions were genuine apostles, real messengers of God, and that their message was true. But he also wrote for another reason. He wanted the believers to know that their faith was also genuine, and for those who had doubts, he wanted to give them ways to test their faith so that they could see whether it was genuine or not, and if it wasn't genuine, so that they could come truly into faith in Christ. That's why he writes 1 John. And his opening lines show this. His opening lines show this. And so in this little four-verse introduction, John actually presents what I've called three propositions. Three propositions. For those of you that like to take notes, you'll be able to hang the rest of the message on these three propositions, and I'm going to give you these propositions one at a time. Now, let me share share with you what the first proposition is. The first proposition is that John and his companions proclaim the truth about a person who is called the word of life. And you say, well, that's kind of not in the first verse. It's in the second verse. Why is it out of order? Um... It's out of order because the translators are trying to translate the Greek into English in a way that it flows, but we don't catch the structure of the Greek. And so let me just say this, Um, it's not until you get into verse 2 that the main verbs appear. 
the main verbs appear. And the main verbs are testify and proclaim. That's in verse 2. And so let me read those two verses to you. Um, what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. That's the first proposition. That John and his companions proclaim the truth about a person called the word of life. So what does it mean to proclaim? What does it mean to testify? That English word that's translated testify comes from a Greek word, martyrios. And the Greek word martyrios simply means witness or someone who bears witness. If it's in the verbal form, somebody that's bearing witness. And proclaim simply means to make known, to bring tidings of, uh, to make known openly. It speaks of a person or an event. And so John is saying that we actually came bearing witness about a person. We actually came making proclamation about this person. We brought good tidings about this person. And he was an eyewitness in many ways. That's what he's saying. Um, now, when I was a kid, I remember this series of books that were written for um, elementary age children, and they, they covered historical events, right? And the name of the series was the I Was There series. And I remember reading one, the title was, I was there for the Battle of the Bulge. Now, some of you young folks don't know what the Battle of the Bulge was, unless you studied World War II history, but my grandfather and my father had fought in World War II, and I was fully aware of what the Battle of the Bulge was, and so I wanted to read the book titled, I was there for the Battle of the Bulge. Why? Because in the title, it's claiming that the author was an eyewitness to what happened, there's a series of World War II books also today. The title is The Things Our Fathers Saw by Matthew Roselle. And these books give eyewitness accounts of what men and women experienced during the Second World War. And a lot of us that like history like to read books like that because we're reading eyewitness accounts. In essence, that's what John the Apostle is saying here. They proclaimed and testified about the word of life as eyewitnesses, they were there. And when you understand what was happening in the churches, you understand why John was saying what he was saying in that little introduction. Because there were people that were arising and saying, well, John's not really a real messenger of God. Okay, so that's the first proposition. John and his companions proclaim the truth about a person called the word of life or called in another part the son of God. Then he lays down a second proposition. The second proposition is this. John and companions gave tangible proofs about who this person was and what he was like. And so you have a real proclamation and then you've got tangible proofs regarding the word of life, the son of God, and how John and his companions came in contact with that person. And so I want you to notice what is emphasized in verses one and three. In verse one and verse three, you have five what's, W-H-A-T-S, that John lays out. First of all, in verse one, he says, what was from the beginning 
That's what he made proclamation about. Now, what is that about? What beginning was he talking about? Well, he was actually not talking about the same beginning that he wrote about in the first chapter of his gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 1, he wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning was with God. All things were made by him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. That beginning referred to creation, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word created. This beginning is a different beginning. When he writes what was from the beginning here, he's referring to the incarnation or the start of Jesus' ministry. And so what he was saying is, from the time Jesus began to go about and do ministry, in the beginning of his ministry, after he became flesh, that's where this witness begins. And if you read in Matthew 4, 18 to 21, you'll see that John was one of the first disciples called, along with his brother James and Peter and his brother too. And in uh, John chapter 1, there's a place where other disciples are called. And so this is a significant statement. John is saying, listen, we were with this person that we've proclaimed the word of life, also known as Jesus Christ, from the time he started his ministry. So we witnessed the whole thing. That's what he's trying to say. That's the first what. What was from the beginning, what we have heard. That reference is an audible witness. So John and his companions were an audible witness to what Jesus taught and proclaimed. We started with Jesus when he started his ministry, and we heard with our ears what he taught and what he preached. That's what's behind this. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes. What we have seen with our eyes denotes a visible witness. So we were with Jesus when he started his ministry. We heard what he taught. We saw what he did from the start of his ministry. And so we can give an audible witness and a visible witness to what he was about. And then here's the fourth what. What we have looked at, that reemphasizes what we've seen, and touched with our hands. That's a physical witness. And so he says, my witness about this word of life is fourfold. It starts from Jesus' beginning to minister, and it is an audible witness, and it is a visible witness, and it is a physical witness. The Greek word for touched with our hands is an interesting word. It doesn't appear much in the scriptures like John's using it, but it appears um, elsewhere in another form. And so one example will be in Luke chapter 24, and I believe it's the 39th verse. Now, you don't need to turn there, but I'll tell you what happens there. Um, This is Luke's account of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, and there's this appearance that he makes to his disciples after he's risen from the dead. And some of them are afraid because they think they've seen a spirit. And he basically says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Come over here and touch me and handle me. 
and you will see that I have flesh and bone. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bone like I have. Parallel word used here when John talks about how they touched with their hands. That may be a direct reference to that event recorded in Luke chapter 24 and verse 39. And so get this now. What the Gnostics taught was that Christ did not come in the flesh. What John is saying is, yes, he did. How do you know he came in the flesh, John? Our hands touched him and handled him. Even when we thought he was a phantom, a spirit, the way he proved to us that he was not a spirit but was a real flesh and blood person was that he had us come and touch him and he invited Thomas to put his hands, his fingers in the wounds and the wound in his side. He was a physical person. Yes, he's the son of God and God is a spirit, but he's a physical person. He'd come in the flesh. And so they had touched with their hands the physical Christ And so they were able to bear physical witness concerning the word of life, Jesus Christ. And then when you jump down into verse 3, there's a restatement of some of what John has already said. He says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. And so what he's doing is defending himself as the eyewitness and defending the message as being a message that was verified by tangible proofs. Audible witness, visible witness, physical witness that these men had been involved with and had participated in. And so the false teachers were troubling the churches in part by saying that Jesus had not come in the flesh. John's saying, no, 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 absolutely, you're not right. These people are teaching you wrongly. They are leading you astray. We are witnesses to the fact that he did come in the flesh. We were there. You could almost hear him saying, listen, go back and read my gospel. I wrote a gospel already before I wrote you this first letter. Go read my gospel. If you read my gospel, it's my eyewitness account. And, you know, we were there. We saw him turn water into wine. We saw him raise the nobleman's son. We saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. We saw him feed 5,000. We saw him walk on the water. He himself, a physical person, he caught up with our boat. We saw him heal lepers and make them whole and clean again. We heard him extend forgiveness to sinful people. We were there when he healed the paralytic. And that was a really interesting situation if you know the paralytic I'm talking about. That doesn't appear in John's gospel. It's in the synoptics. But there was this guy who was paralyzed and his friends dug a hole in the roof of this home where Jesus was teaching and they let this paralytic down on his mat through the roof and onto the floor in front of Jesus. And I always wondered what happened to the roof. Because they dismantled it to let this guy in. And when that happened, Jesus looks at this paralytic and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Do you remember the story? 
And these Pharisees that were there grumbled about it, and they're saying in themselves, who is this man who says he can forgive sins? No one can forgive sins except God alone. And Jesus perceives what they're thinking, and he looks at them, and he says, what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or rise and take up your bed and walk? But so that you know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he says that to the Pharisees. He turns to the paralytic and says, I say to you, take up your bed and walk. And the dude gets strength in his legs, and he stands up and rolls up his mat and walks out the door. And John and his companions had seen that take place. They were there when it happened. And so they were able to say, no, 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 this false teaching is just false. It's false, it's false, it's false. We know who we walked with. We know what we witnessed. We wrote about it. That's the second proposition that he gives. So John therefore said that he proclaimed a person and also that he gave tangible eyewitness proofs about that person, the word of life, also known as Jesus Christ, And he gave that for a specific reason. And that's what the third proposition is. The third proposition is this. John proclaimed Christ Jesus and proved him in order that his readers of 1 John might have personal fellowship in a threefold way. Take a look at verse 3 now. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that. Now, the so that gives you the reason why the proclamation and the testimony was given. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And then John defines the us. He's not only talking about himself, but those that they had fellowship with. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's the third proposition. He proclaimed Christ Jesus and proved him in order that his readers of 1 John might have personal fellowship in a threefold way. What was the threefold way? Well, he wanted his readers to either come to have or continue in fellowship with him, John, and his companions. And he wanted them to either continue in fellowship or come to have fellowship with God the Father. And he wanted them to either continue in fellowship or come to have fellowship with the Father, Son, Jesus Christ. That's what he lays out right here. So what is fellowship about? Well, to have fellowship with someone in the sense of the Greek word, and the Greek word is the word koinonia, it appears in a number of places in the New Testament, and that's the word that appears here. Uh, To have fellowship with someone, in the Greek sense of the term koinonia means to have a close relationship with that person based on common interests and a common purpose. That's what it means to have fellowship. And so... 
I'm standing here looking at the congregation of Grace Bible Church in Hollister. And my assumption is that all of you that are Christians here have koinonia with one another. You have a relationship with each other, and you have a relationship with each other in the church, in Christ. Your relationships are close. You're the core of the church. I know the church has been through many trials and dangers and tribulations. You're the folks that are still here. You're the folks that are engrafted in. You're the folks, if you're not new to the church, that would say, why should I go somewhere else? This is my faith family. Family's connected. I can't break family ties. I gotta stay connected. This is my faith family. You have koinonia with each other. You have close relationship with each other. And I can only assume that your close relationship with each other is based on common interests, which is in Christ and in the church, and also a common purpose, which is to be a witness to Christ through this body, to this community, for the glory of Christ. Am I right? That's what koinonia is, and that's what John proclaimed so that these Christians would either continue in fellowship or come to have fellowship. Because you see, the false claim of those who had left the Johannine churches was that they, with their new knowledge, had fellowship with God, not John, and not those that remained in the Johannine churches. And so John is hitting these problems head on in what he writes just in the introduction. He's addressing this. So here's what he's doing in this introduction. He is in essence, does this in, does this in his introduction. He is saying, look, some of you are being troubled by those who have departed. Some of you are being troubled by those who are attempting to draw you away after them. I, on the other hand, bear eyewitness testimony to Jesus Christ, the word of life, who I and we heard, saw, looked at, touched with our hands, we have proclaimed and are proclaiming this to you so you will have fellowship with us. Because our fellowship is the true fellowship, not that fellowship. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And so I'm giving you a divine invitation to stay in fellowship with us, with the Father, with the Son, Jesus Christ. That's what he's telling to these first century Christians that are being pulled and pulled and pulled and pulled. And then he says in verse four something interesting. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And why would he say that? Well, what he was saying was, my joy will be complete if you continue in or connect with our fellowship because our fellowship is with God the Father and Christ his Son. And there is no other eternal fellowship that will bring eternal benefit and blessing, except fellowship with the true Father and the true Christ, Jesus, his Son. Another way to put it is to the extent that these believers that John wrote to 
continued in fellowship with the apostles and the apostles' teaching. They would continue with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and that in itself would make John's joy complete. That's the introduction. The introduction, verses 1 through 4, is nothing less than an invitation to enter or continue in relationship with God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, by embracing God's redemptive purposes as Jesus revealed them. Now, that's a lot of information. What does that have to do with 21st century people? Let me share with you three applications. First of all, you may be here today and though you come regularly or maybe you're visiting, you're not a Christian. You've never come to a place where you've put true trust and faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died for you and rose again on your behalf. And so you can't confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord. And you don't believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You're not a Christian. If that's the case, John's invitation is being extended to you. John's invitation is being extended to you through his letter. And the invitation is this. The invitation is to consider the claims of Jesus Christ and then to embrace Jesus Christ by believing he is who the eyewitnesses say he is. Now, you can get a full dose of eyewitness testimony by reading Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, Matthew was an immediate disciple. Mark was a companion of Peter and wrote down what he learned from Peter about Jesus Christ. Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul and wrote down what he learned about Jesus Christ from the Apostle Paul in addition to all the research he did. And John, as we talked about, was an immediate disciple called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Read through the eyewitness accounts. You'll get a full dose of who Jesus was, the Son of God, who died for sin, who rose again, and believe it. Put your faith in Christ. Nothing in the world will help you or save you when you leave this life and go into eternity. Only Jesus Christ, who defeated death and paid the penalty for sin, can be your hope. And apart from Christ, people are hopeless. That's if you're not a Christian, okay? And only Jesus knows whether you are or not. I just know from being a pastor for, uh, well, 35 years as a lead pastor that uh, it's really easy to get involved in a church, not be born again, and learn the language really quickly and look externally conformed, right? But you may know in your heart that you don't belong to Christ. So that's the first application. What if you're a Christian? Well, the lesson for you and for me as Christians are kind of simple. Uh, avoid, one is avoid new revelation. Um, new revelation so-called, and anyone who comes with another gospel or who reinterprets the simple gospel revealed in Scripture, that was what was happening to the churches that John was writing to. Uh, they were being deluded or tricked by new revelation and stuff like that. Um, you know, today there's what's called the new hermeneutic. I don't know if you've heard about it. 
It's called the new hermeneutic of humility. I learned this from Dr. John MacArthur, uh, listening to a message where he was talking about it. Uh, The new hermeneutic of humility says this, that because this is such an ancient book, we can't really know what it says, and we can't really be sure what it means, and so we need to be humble about it and just admit that we really don't know, and it might mean this, or it might mean that, or it might mean something else. That's the new hermeneutics of humility. That's insanity. The reason God gave us his revelation written in a book is because words have a meaning that can be understood. Don't get caught up in that kind of stuff if you're a Christian already. Um, There are churches that are founded today on sins that the scripture condemns. When we get into the next section of verses, chapter 1, verse 5 to 10, I'll talk about that week after next, but don't be tricked by these types of things, because if you are tricked by those types of things, then you'll be falling into the danger and the error that these first century Christians John was writing about was falling into. Stick with the simple gospel. Stick with the simple word of truth. If you're a Christian and you've got the Holy Spirit and you pick up the book and you read what it says... The Holy Spirit shines a light on it. It's called illumination, and you can understand what it says and what it means. We'll get into more of that as we move forward through the letter. Now, here's a third application. Some of you might be struggling with your own assurance of faith. As I said two weeks ago, I'll say again, that is a common challenge and struggle for believers And in our day and age, it's particularly a common challenge and struggle. And one of the reasons is because almost everything in our society is contested. Almost everything is contested. And so if you talk to certain people and say certain things with certainty, and it smacks of you knowing absolute truth, you're going to get a pushback. Because we live in a day and an age where theoretically nothing can be known with certainty. Nothing can be known absolutely. So it's common for people to struggle with their own assurance of salvation. If you struggle with your own assurance of salvation for whatever reason, then I would encourage you to come week after week after week after week. And if you have to miss a Sunday, go and listen to the live stream. Because After John laid the foundation, he's going to work through, and his goal is not only to say, we are the true witnesses of the true and living Christ, but here are ways that you can know for certain that you have true faith in the risen Christ. And so you're going to want to be partaking of these teachings from John, 1 John, so that you can come to have assurance of faith. So with that, let's pray, and then I'm going to share a benediction really quickly. Join with me. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we could get together today and just take some time to work through these first four verses of 1 John. Um, We thank you for the proclamation that the apostles made. We thank you, Father, for the proofs that they were able to present And we thank you that they did all of those things as an invitation to all of us that we might have fellowship with them 
a fellowship that's with you, Heavenly Father, and with your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, seated at your right hand, awaiting the word from you to come back with power and great glory. We delight in having fellowship with the apostles and with you, the one true God. And so now we pray, take what's been spoken and seal it to our hearts. Help us grasp it, help us walk in it, help us obey it. And we pray that as we do, you would fill us with the same joy that John references in the first, fourth verse of his letter. Help us be your witnesses and help us build up one another in our most holy faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I just want to read um, one verse out of 1 Timothy chapter 3 by way of benediction. And so after I share this benediction, uh, we'll dismiss from our formal time of worship. But here's what the Apostle Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 16. And this dovetails with what we just talked about. Paul wrote, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. For all of you who are in Christ today, may you go with Christ's peace on you. And may he use you to be salt and light in this community and wherever you find yourself until you come back together again next week for worship. God bless you. Have a good day in the Lord.